homeschool expert is here to equip you to homeschool confidently with help from the experts. You can do this, and we are here to help. Visit homeschoolexpert.com for video and print resources. Helping you homeschool confidently is our host, Ann Crossman, and her guest expert for today's special broadcast. Hi, friend, and welcome to Homeschool Expert. I am honored and super excited to have Julie Bogart joining us today to talk about helping our kids find everyday magic in homeschool, learning, and life. Julie is a homeschool legend, not only educating her five children from home over the course of 17 years, but developing the international best-selling resource of the Brave Writer Program. She also published the book, The Brave Learner, which I'm sure many of you have read, and available this February is her newest book, Raising Critical Things. A Parent's Guide to Growing Wise Kids in the Digital Age. Boy, do we need that book. (laughs) So in 2017, Julie's work in Brave Writer was recognized as an outstanding contribution to society when she was awarded the Madge's Alumni Award from Xavier University. So it's an understatement to say that she's widely sought after for speaking engagements. On a personal note, Julie has been a wise mentor to me in the early days of launching Homeschool Expert, and I am so grateful for how she has generously shared her time with me. So Julie, thank you for making space on your dance card and for being here today. Goodness, Anne, it's lovely to be here. That was a beautiful introduction. Very appreciated. Oh, my pleasure. So a lot of parents are are nervous. Like when we think about Brave Writer, so well titled, <laughs> they don't feel brave, right? They're nervous about teaching writing. And I'd love to spend some time today talking about that program. But before we even get there, can you tell me a little bit more about your homeschool journey? What what got you into homeschooling and how did it meet your challenge, meet or challenge your expectations? That's such a wonderful question. So one of the humorous stories about my background is that I learned about homeschooling before I was ever married. Mm -hmm. Uh, At the time I was getting engaged and my, you know, then fiance's good friend took me aside and said, so Julie, are you going to homeschool your children? (laughs) And this would, this was in 1984. And I said, what did you say? What, what word was that? And he said, homeschool. And I said, well, what is that? And then he spent like the next 10 minutes describing how homeschooling was going to save our country and save our world. And wow. Yes. Yes. Who was was, this guy in the 1980s? How did he know about it? He was, um, you know, worried about the communist takeover of America, like that very, like very clear sort of political agenda. But what was standing out to me at the time and what hooked my imagination almost immediately is when he pivoted and began talking about tailor-made education for a child, Mm. that the parent would have the greatest responsibility and opportunity to influence the child's education. And immediately that caught my imagination. I mean, I hadn't even gotten married yet, didn't have any kids, (laughs) but that idea sounded really interesting. And um, I knew we were going to be living abroad. We were getting ready to move to North Africa. And that's where this friend was also living. And so I said, all right, yeah, sure. I'll do homeschooling. And then he turned around and said to John, Hey, she's all right. (laughs) She's going to homeschool your kids. Almost like she's going to do what? Yeah. So so that's my weird introduction to homeschool. That's awesome. Uh, But by the time my kids were school age, by then I had actually met families who home educated their kids in Morocco, where we were living. Hmm. I had started reading books about home education And what really grabbed me, what made me want to do it 
is that the kind of education they were describing was actually similar to my education that I got in a very progressive, very unusual public school system in California. Mm. Hmm. I had these, you know, teachers who had come out of the Peace Corps (laughs) basically uh, in the 60s and 70s who were experimenting with education. And as I read about homeschooling, I was like, well, that's what I want to do for my kids. I want to be able to do an archaeological dig in the backyard. I want to be able to dress up in Renaissance clothes and have a Renaissance fair. I want to read books aloud all morning outside on a blanket. I did those things in school. But school had changed and I knew it wasn't Mm. like that anymore. And so ironically, I homeschooled because I wanted to have as good a educational experience as I had had in school. (laughs) I love that. That is a beautiful way to frame it. And as I think you know this about me, but I formerly taught in the public school system. So, yeah, there are so many great ways to get an education. And this is just one of them. And that you had an awesome school experience is beautiful for a backdrop for all this. I love that. How long were you in Morocco? Uh, four years, but it was over an eight year period. So we had some time back in the States going back and forth. Yeah. That's definitely brave. We've lived overseas as well. And yeah, raising a family overseas is, is where were you, uh, South Korea. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, you're in a country that had a different orthography, different language, uh, different culture. Obviously all countries have their own culture, but I think there's something about going outside of Europe in particular, that is especially challenging for Americans. And I think it was life-changing and life good hard. Yeah, Yeah. it was a good hard, like the grocery stores to this day. I just feel so grateful when I walk in a grocery store and I can read all the labels. It was just such an extraordinary experience to try to figure out what I was making for dinner um, in a new country. And I loved it. It was good. Yeah. Okay. So then if going back to the homeschooling piece, what did you find was most life-giving about homeschooling? and, And what do you wish you could have done differently now that you can look back? Yeah, it's fun to talk about both of those. So as we got ready to homeschool, as my oldest turned six, I waited till he was six. I realized that it didn't feel any different than just living. Homeschooling for me was such a natural extension of the ways I was already engaging with my kids Mm -hmm. that even though I got like a handwriting workbook and I got some workbooks for phonics and math, the majority of our days were still spent having parties, going to the library, walking up to visit the local horses and goats, uh, taking a walk to the post office, playing on play equipment, visiting with our neighbors, reading endlessly aloud, Mm -hmm. jotting down their little thoughts and ideas to show them that they were writers already. So I think initially what it was, was it allowed me to extend that connection and closeness that I had with my children. And I didn't have to you know, cut that off by sending them on a bus somewhere. As we continue to homeschool, one of my favorite benefits that I still see active in my adult children is how close they are to each other. They really do see each other as their best friends as adults. And I am convinced that it was all those years they spent together bonding with one another. They have shared inside jokes and inside stories. Yes. And homeschooling really provided this sort of family culture that they've taken with them into their adult years. So educationally, it's been wonderful, but also sometimes we forget that there is a relational and emotional well-being piece that homeschooling really delivers. And I'm seeing the fruit of that in their adult years. 
Yeah. And that resonates with me because I was homeschooled and my two younger brothers, so many of our memories overlap and are interwoven yes. that we can easily turn to the other and say, do you remember that time when, do you remember that science experiment that, you know, went wrong or whatever? Um, and that's a real source of fun because our childhoods were so yeah, interwoven that we really share them even still. So that's, that's right. And, and that I don't have with my siblings in the same way. Right. So Which doesn't mean though, we didn't fight. I, I don't want to like, Oh, <laughs> no. About it. no, it's hard, but uh, <laughs> it's meaningful. It's meaningful. Uh, and I'm not saying that you can't have close relationships without homeschool, Correct. but it did create a kind of family culture around learning as well. So I noticed that my adult kids love to email each other articles or share a favorite quote from a book they're reading. They're constantly trading book lists. Like they mm -hmm. know what the other child will really be interested in. They explore new experiences and travel together. They've all lived abroad. And so they've all traveled to see each other in the places that they've chosen to live. So I just, fun. I love that. I feel like the spirit of adventure and the curiosity about living and learning has persisted into the adult years with them. That's beautiful. So then one of the dangers though, in staying in the homeschooling world after your kids have grown up is that new stuff keeps coming out and you look yes. at it and go, Oh, I wish we'd done that. I think. Right. I'm guessing. Well, <laughs> is you there know, anything like that that you look at, you're like, oh, that would have been cool. Well, I'm sure there are things. I mean, the internet didn't even exist when I was first homeschooling, and that must have been true for you as a kid. Yes. Um, so homeschooling looked very different without the internet. You know, we were just desperate for connection with other homeschoolers. I received some kind of a newsletter that people contributed to, and it came once a quarter. And when it arrived, I was like, leave me alone for two days while I read this <laughs> back to back. Yeah. It was sort of like a, a print version of a discussion board, right? Mm -hmm. We felt isolated. It was easy to wonder, am I hitting the mark? Am I missing the mark? Is there a resource or something that would help me that I don't know about? How do I find out about it? Especially with all the negative societal pressure saying you're going to ruin your kids. You're totally. making square pegs for round holes and you know all that. Totally. And people didn't know what homeschooling was. So right. it was still very defensive posture around yep. homeschool. But on the flip side, without connection to the whole world, we were protected a little bit in a bubble. I also didn't suffer from acute comparison syndrome <laughs> the way that I did True. once the internet started, right? Yeah, Suddenly now sure. I'm very aware of what I'm not doing <laughs> that I could be. So my my chief regret, if if I would put it that way, was more around parenting advice than homeschool. I think mm -hmm. homeschooling, we were we were pretty consistently successful. I mean, there were adjustments around schedule and routine. And I had some kids who preferred a planner and some who preferred unschooling and yep. figuring out and navigating video games. Those were ongoing challenges, right? But when I think about what made life hard, it was bad parenting advice. <laughs> And, you know, learning to be a parent, parenting itself is challenging and it's so interwoven with home education. So I had to be on that learning curve of really getting to know my kids, trusting the process, not thinking that punishment was a solution it was those kinds of feelings really for me. 
Yeah. And uh, you're right to say that it kept changing too, because I think for a lot of new homeschoolers, they feel like, oh, great. Year one went well. I got this all figured out. We are set. (laughs) And every year is different. I mean, I'll, I'll use things from the past structures that worked or get rid of ones that didn't or resources, you know, what have you, but, uh, it's never the same every year. It's never the same for every kid. I think I use four different reading curriculums to teach our four kids how to read. Um, completely. Yeah, no, that's right. And actually there are a couple of reasons to switch. One is something new comes along and it entices you. Another is this child doesn't learn the way the previous one learned. And so that previous one isn't working. Another reason is your own boredom. If you have five kids and you've taught the same program three times, you may not want to face it by the fourth and fifth child. And so I love to tell parents, it's a legitimate reason to switch if you're just sick of it. If you're just sick of it. I've yeah. never heard that before, but I love that. <laughs> I'm going to be repeating that one. That's a good one. Good. I'll credit you though, whenever I say it. Oh, that's fine. No, no. You say it twice, Bogart it becomes says, yours. That's right. Okay. Yeah. Isn't that the rule? Two or three times it's mine. Uh, no, but yeah, that makes sense. That, and I would also maybe throw in um, learning disabilities, right? As we Definitely. discover our kids have special learning needs. It's like, Absolutely. oh, this isn't going to work for you. Or you have an anxiety disorder. We got to do the slow-mo version of this just to help ramp it up. And totally. Yeah. yeah All very good point. Yeah. Yep. So then how did Brave Writer get started? Was this while you had kids or after? It was. Yeah. So I grew up in a family with a mother who is a freelance writer. Uh, today, she's 83 years old and has written more than 70 books. We keep trying to get her to give us an official count. And she's like, ah, it's over 70. I, I can't be as incredible. Yeah. Yeah. She's amazing. And um, in fact, just won some big award for her most recent book that sold 500,000 copies. Like she's- Okay. So wait, promo her here though. Give her name so that people can- I will. Her name is Karen O'Connor and her books that are selling like wildfire right now are, um, she writes in the Christian adult market. So she writes devotionals for seniors, things like- help Lord. I'm having a senior moment growing old ain't for whims. Yeah. And they just sell like hotcakes. It's amazing. I was in the Dayton airport and there were her books. I'm like, there are 10 books in here. And one of them's yours. You're amazing. (laughs) So anyway, she is, um, she was a very natural writing teacher in my life. And I was a natural writer. I've, I can't remember a time when I didn't have a diary, didn't have my own story journal. I always loved writing, but what she was good at was really coaching writing. Mm. So she was focused on connecting with a reader, making sure that I was having fun writing, that I had more options, not fewer options of how to make this even more engaging to read. And that partnership throughout my childhood really set me on a great course. Uh, I've always had success. So as an adult, I constantly looked for ways to keep writing. And uh, at one point I was writing for the Wet Set Gazette. I wrote for La Leche League magazine. I wrote church newsletters, that kind of thing. Yep. And I, I had this opportunity to um, give feedback to PhD students who were writing dissertations. Hmm. My husband at the time was a composition professor. The opportunity came to him. He didn't have time. And I said, well, don't tell them I'm doing it. I'll do it and you can get paid. Because I had no qualifications. I had a bachelor's in history. And he said to me, why do you think you can do that? I said, I don't know. I'm just bursting with confidence. I know I'll be good at it. 
And sure enough, I was really good at it. Mm -hmm. Uh, I had really good success. That word got out into our denomination. I got hired to um, be the senior editor of their quarterly magazine. Then I started ghostwriting for the senior, um, the founder of the denomination. And my writing reputation got out in front of audiences suddenly. And one of my um, fellow church friends said to me, you know, what are you using to teach writing? Because now that I know you're good at writing, whatever you're using must work. Right. And I said, well, I don't use anything. I just know how to do it. So we set up, she asked me to set up a- That's not helpful. (laughs) Yeah, right. Um, And in fact, I said, well, show me a writing program because I had never seen one. Mm. And so she pulled out this binder. I'm not going to name it because people will know it. And uh, we opened it to the first page and um, I read the first page. There was a sample paragraph and then a description of how to write a paragraph. So I pointed to the paragraph and I said to her, did you read this? She said, yes. I said, you read the sample? She said, yes. I said, did you like it? She says, what do you mean? I said, well, like you read the sample paragraph, you got to the end of it and you thought, dang, I wish there was a second paragraph. I wish my kids could write like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, did you think that? And she said, no. And so then I just gently closed the book Yeah. and I said, why would you use a writing manual whose sample was so dull? You didn't even enjoy reading it as a model for your own children's writing. Mm. And at the end of that conversation, she's like, I think you need to do a class. So we created this little Sunday school class and um, it was like seven weeks long. It started with like 15 people and it ended with like 40 and it included teachers from school, moms and dads of public school kids, private school and homeschool. Hmm. And I thought I was sharing information everybody knew. And it turned out I was sharing information no one knew. Yeah. And, and what I discovered was this, and this is really the dawn of Brave Rider. There is a way that educators approach writing that has no relationship to how professionals teach writing to people who want to be paid and published. Those are completely two different schools of instruction. Mm-hmm. And what I know now, after 21 years of Brave Writer, is that if you teach writing the way professionals teach it, you end up with better writing, yeah. happier writers, and long term results. If we keep doing it the way school does it, we end up with a population of adults who actually are afraid to show their writing to anyone. Yeah. Who get nervous writing emails in companies who, when they are asked to write, say, oh, I'm terrible at it as a yes. defensive posture. Right. You know, when I speak in a conference and I say, how many of you are nervous to write? If I ask you to write right now, uh, most hands go up. Mm-hmm. When I do say, okay, we're going to do some free writing, the entire room freezes. <laughs> That to me proves that yes. the educator model has not been successful. Right. So why copy writing. that? Please so don't. Why do we keep doing it that way? Yep. Yep. That's right. Yeah. So Brave Writers started, I, I really started working with families in uh, 1997. The company started in January of 2000. And what I discovered is that parents wanted to know how to teach their kids to write. They didn't want more programs telling them what to write. Mm -hmm. So my first approach was helping parents get on the inside of what writing feels like in a new writer, and then giving them lots of processes to help them and their kids experience writing. Before you tell your kids what to write, like a paragraph or a report or a letter, they need to know how to 
pull the words from inside their bodies and externalize them to the page. And a lot of kids don't know how to do that. They start out with a vague feeling. They start out with vague language. They start out with anxiety about spelling and punctuation. And what we want to do is help them start to self-express in a safe, risk-free environment Mm -hmm. where they can get to know their own interiors because that's what's going to do the writing. Telling them they need three sentences does not give them access to their thought lives. No, it doesn't. We do. I love doing um, free writing with our kids every morning. We journal every day and it's like, what are we supposed to write about? I said, I'm I'm not going to tell you. I mean, I can put some ideas in a jar if they want to pull some out. If they're truly, truly writer's block, just no idea. But otherwise they write and they're really, like you said, really worried. I I don't know how to spell the word. I said, I don't care. I'm not grading this. I don't even need to see it. I mean, that's right. When they want to read it aloud, then they, then they start to say, well, can we read them? said, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, but I never, never grade their journals on purpose. Cause I, I don't, I don't want any red pen in there. That's their expressive place. They're exploring. That's right. And that's how they're gaining their facility. I like to compare it to when your child is learning to talk. So when Noah was a baby, he's my oldest child. He was 11 months old. He was sitting in a high chair behind me and I was washing dishes at the sink. And all of a sudden he said the word Nana. Now, I wasn't yet a writing coach, but I was a writer. So I turned around and I said to Noah, oh, Noah, that is beautiful that you are trying to speak. But do you realize that Nana is just part of a word? And the whole word is (laughs) banana. And banana is actually a noun and it doesn't really have meaning alone. So I need you to put it in a sentence. We're going (laughs) to say it like this. I would like a banana. And because it is a form of etiquette, I need you to use the oral format that shows manners. So I need you to add the word please at the end. So try this. I would like a banana mama, please. And then, you know, of course, did I say any of that to my new speaker? No. Yeah. No. What I said instead was, oh my gosh, my 11 month old is brilliant. I called his father down the stairs. I made an international call to my mother. We wrote it in the (laughs) baby book. We gave him six bananas and tried to get him to do it again. We stopped calling the banana a banana for a year fully confident that that wasn't ruining his ability to learn the word, right? You know, parents say all the time about misspellings. If I let them misspell it, will they ever learn the word? Well, they misspoke for years. And we actually used those words in our family, like mazazine and chacuzzi and bischetti without any fear. We knew they'd get it. We were delighted. We were reinforcing Mm. that the risk you took was delightful and we're going to celebrate it until you retire that format, that form, because you've learned the other word. So we called it Nana for several months, you know, a year. At some point, he said something like, me want Nana, and we were equally thrilled. We understood him. And by age five, with a little coaching, sometimes modeling, like, did you mean to say, I want a banana? (laughs) And then he he copies my exact words, and I don't think, oh, no. Are those actually his words, or are they just mine? I better never speak to him again in case he uses one of my words in a sentence. We don't do that with speech. Right. So at age five, one day, in a fit of fluency, he yells from the other room, hey, mom, get me a banana. Yeah. And at that point, I say, hey. Can you say please? Right. Because he is so fluent 
adding that oral format of etiquette is second nature. It's easy. He can do it and he can adapt to it. He isn't now thinking, how do I put my tongue and how do I conjugate what I need to say? Yes. So that's the pattern for speech. And it can be the identical pattern for writing, Hmm. but that's not how school teaches it. That's a beautiful parallel and so accessible, I think, to parents, especially who are saying, I can't teach writing. It's like, well, actually you, you can, you can talk about stories and what do they sound like and thinking and ideas and, and who cares initially? Yeah. What the sentences are looking you like. You can celebrate their writing yeah. by jotting it down for them. Yes. The, I've the been writers for my littles. Yeah. That's exactly right. They, the writer lives inside. And sometimes I joke with parents and I say, and I, and this is, kind of a graphic joke, but it, it's effective. Um, sometimes I say, if we chopped off both their hands and gouged out both of their eyes, they could still be writers. Yes. They don't need to have access to their own ability to transcribe. Mm-hmm. Stephen Hawking wrote books with voice-to-text software. Mm-hmm. We are text-to-voice in his case, but there is a usefulness of technology to support externalizing the voice. So if we know that, then we want them to experience the fluency of their verbal life in writing before they can read and write, because that's when they know they're a writer. They know they're a writer when their ideas are worth preserving in written Mm -hmm. expression, Yes, reading them to an interested audience and returning to them a second or third or 20th time, proving that those thoughts can be preserved. That's what helps them want to write is that experience. And for students with dyslexia, because I have one of those, I think it's terrifying. Oh yeah. And so I don't ask her to write. I just ask her to talk. And so, yes, we have all these great accommodations now with iPads and Siri and, or I play scribe. And that way she is still able to engage the thoughts and the ideas and come up with stuff that's totally wackadoodle that I would never have thought of or put together. And I don't care that she's not the one with the pen on the paper. Um, that's right. It's growing and that's what matters. So then you, so then brave writer sounds like this was a tool to teach parents, but is it still that, or is it now also a tool or a textbook or curriculum for parents to use with their kids? I love that you asked me that question because I think brave writer confuses people in part because this is not how other programs work. So the way I conceive of writing is almost like a, a stool with three legs. One of the legs is this original thought piece. It's the verbal fluency. It's the ability to access your interiors and express them Mm -hmm. in language. Original thought needs a context. It needs a partner, someone who can ask you better questions, help you grow your insight, give you meaningful feedback. And those processes set the stage for writing. So in my seminal work, The Writer's Jungle, I walk parents through each of the processes that they do with their kids to grow that writing process experience. Mm -hmm. So at the beginning, we start with an oral language game where there's no writing at all just to get them in touch with the blind communication of writing. What is it like to express to an audience that can't give me feedback? So we start there. Mm. The second process is keenly observing and giving richer and richer detailed information uh, and experience to something that you're looking at, like a lipstick or perfume or a cup of hot chocolate or a glass of lemonade. And by helping kids start to pay attention to the keen observations they make, they start to realize that with better questions, 
comes better language. So as you can see, even at the beginning of the writing process, there's no writing. It's actually <laughs> gaining access mm. to your thinking, to your thoughts, better and better vocabulary. I remember um, one time pulling out the Crayola 64 set with my kids and we just started comparing all the shades of a pine cone to as many of the Crayola names as possible so that we would get better words like burnt sienna and mahogany instead of just What a brown. cool idea. Yeah, that's yeah. a very cool idea. So the writer's jungle really focuses on that first leg of the stool, which is parent-guided writing process experience for the child. The second leg of the stool would be the mechanics of writing, spelling, punctuation, grammar, handwriting. And those need to be taught with someone else's writing. Mm -hmm. What do I mean by that? It's really hard for kids to have original ideas and tap into their sophisticated oral vocabulary and then try to funnel all that down around, arm out through a pen onto a page while also attending to whether the D or the B goes to the right or left. Correct. It's not whether, a safe space. <clears throat> that's right. Whether or not they know how to spell the word, whether or not it needs a period at the end. This is too much brain cognitive load for a child mm -hmm. who is still learning to get automatic in handwriting or typing. Mm -hmm. So what we do instead is we borrow someone else's writing. We go and do copy work or dictation using E.B. White or, um, you know, Roald Dahl or uh, Kwame Alexander. We get their writing and we have the child first trace it, trace a word, trace a sentence. Let them experience reading meaningful language and using the pen to express it. Then they copy it. Maybe it's the word right above and they write it right beneath. Then eventually maybe it's on a separate sheet of paper and they copy it to their own page. Mm -hmm. Eventually the parent is going to read that passage aloud and the child will transcribe it on a sheet of paper. Why is that powerful? Because they are actually doing the activity of listening to language, hearing it in meaningful contexts, spelling while they're thinking about meaning, which is just one leg, a rank, you know, rung of the ladder down from doing it for their own thoughts. And are you saying that's an age progression so that they're going to do that, you know, as they age or that you want them to take that cycle with each passage so that over the course of a few weeks, they'll do that multiple times? It's both. So when a child is really new to writing, they're not ready for dictation, right? So they may only be tracing for a whole year. Yes. But as they progress, we can use copy work to introduce a passage to a high schooler. But the copy work is going to be a full page, right? And the dictation is going to be a full page. So they're going to use that copy work experience to sort of get familiar with the passage before they have to do it in dictation. Um, my experience with dictation came for the first time in college. I was an exchange student in France and the French love dictate, love dictation. <laughs> and so my very first one was two pages front and back. And I got 83 things wrong <laughs> because it was French and they have accents and cities yeah. and, uh, you know, it was challenging for uh, a, you know, junior, junior in college. But what I've discovered over doing this with students now for so long across all age spectrums and skill levels is that you can always return to copy work. You can always 
tryout dictation at whatever level. And what you do is you're building the capacity to eventually free write, write your own essay, because you are training the mind to think about spelling and punctuation so that it becomes more and more automatic. So that when you actually go to write your thoughts, your brain is not laboring over the spelling or right. over the punctuation. So first leg of the school, a stool, original thought, writing process, how you externalize your own language. Mm-hmm. The second part then is how to transcribe your own work. And we use someone else's writing to build those skills. The third then is bringing those two together. This is what balances the stool. And that would be writing assignments or what I call writing projects rather than assignments. Cause I hate that word. Sounds so much better. And, yeah. You got to spin yeah. it. it. The spin That's actually right. helps. Yep. It does help because assignments sounds like I'm doing something to you and a writing project could be something I decide for myself. Fun we do so, together. Yeah. No, yes. we call it special time instead of tutoring because I love it. Just sounds so much better. Yeah. So much nicer. <laughs> That's right. It's time alone with you. So writing projects bring those two skill sets together. So mm-hmm. we're going to use some of those process activities to generate the content. And then we are going to go through and use the mechanic skills we've learned to edit ourselves, to do some revision. Um, but it will be in the framework of a developmentally scaled writing project. So if we take a child who's sort of, let's say nine or 10 years old, we might do a lap book. And instead of having to teach our children introduction, transitions, conclusion, because those are all invisible abstractions for a nine-year-old. Yes. We let the container of the product, the project, excuse me, be the glue. It becomes the transitions. It becomes the conclusion. Hmm. It's visually created for you. The opening flaps are the introduction. The interior flaps contain information. You flip up the middle flap and the conclusion is underneath. We have a way of visually organizing Hmm. and supporting that development, but they're still doing bits and pieces of writing instead of having to produce something long form. So the writing project takes the developmental skill of a child and manages to insert some mechanics and original thought, but gives them a sense of publishing, which Mm -hmm. allows them to experience success at whatever level they're at. Yeah. That's a beautiful way. And again, very accessible, very affordable for families to do at home in a lot of different formats as it fits their life. So then what family is the ideal candidate for Brave Writer? Or if I am asking it differently, um, what kind of students or parents do you see getting the most benefit out of this who come back year after year? So Brave Writer is possible to use with any kind of family. We've seen families who have special needs kids all the way to gifted. We've worked with families in public school and out. Uh, It was obviously originally designed with homeschooling in mind, but COVID has shown all of us that parent participation in education goes a long way towards creating really great learners. And so our materials support that development, no matter who you are, no matter who your kids are. The only limit that I can see is second language, second language speakers of English sometimes Mm -hmm. are a little more challenged. Um, Also, we do use standard American spelling and punctuation conventions. So if you come from the Commonwealth, you're going to want to make those adaptations when you're using our program. Mm. But the the bottom line is what we teach works and it works with all kinds of people. 
as a parent, you have to come willing to participate. This is not a hand the program to the child <laughs> while they work independently in a bedroom. Parents so are everywhere going, be, shucks. <laughs> yeah, no. But yeah. you know, if you think about it, like I just completed working on my second book with um, Penguin Random House, big publisher, and there are lots of people involved. Yes. I'm collaborating. Mm-hmm. What person as an adult goes into a job without collaboration? The number one skill we want to teach our kids is how to collaborate well. Mm -hmm. So here you are as a parent, you have a key opportunity to teach the skill of collaboration, working together, learning how to revise without everybody melting down into tears. And we show you how to do that. This is not punitive. It's not about grading or hitting a certain mark. It is learning to write just like they learn to speak. You weren't grading them. You are moving along at their pace, mm-hmm. helping them along the way, celebrating their successes. You didn't introduce, you know, conducting a business meeting as a format when they were 10 years old. <laughs> you, you, you assumed that their oral language would evolve over time. You know, kids don't give speeches in front of the whole school till they're in high school. They don't act in plays until you know, at a developmentally appropriate scaled stage, they give oral reports at a time when they're capable of fluent speech. Mm-hmm. We want to do the same thing for writing. Yeah. So then for listeners who may have students in junior high range, upper elementary, or maybe even high school who are listening to this saying, oh, I didn't do this at all. Um, oh. Is it too late? Uh, what advice do you have for parents in that spot? Gosh, what a great question. So glad you asked it. Thank you. (laughs) Yes. No, because the thing is, that is exactly what's going through some of the minds right in this moment. Mm -hmm. People are thinking, I've got a 16-year-old who refuses to write. Yeah. And I, I want them to write essays. And what I like to say is this. Imagine that all your life, you never had the money to go on ski vacations. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly your kids are in high school and they are now getting to go on their very first ski vacation. Are you going to start on the black diamond slopes just because they're friends who have been skiing their whole (laughs) lives um, are are on the black diamond slopes? Uh Are you going to say, well, you know, you are 16 and your best friend, he's a black diamond skier. You better get up there on that slope with him. And, you know, Mm -hmm. fingers crossed, (laughs) right? (laughs) You just wouldn't do that. Um, And this analogy comes straight out of my own experience. My dad, who was a fantastic athlete, had never skied in his life. And he took us skiing when I was a senior in high school. And he and I got on the chairlift. And when we got off, our skis interlocked and we completely fell spectacularly. Nice. And then we got on the bunny slopes and we skied the bunny slopes together. And interestingly enough, I was a gymnast and a skateboarder. He was a great tennis and golfer. Within a week, we were good skiers because we already had built some athletic skill. Mm -hmm. And this was just learning a new way to use balance, posture, flexibility, and strength. Your children are fluent speakers of their native language. They are not starting from scratch, even at 16. Mm -hmm. So if they've gone through 16 years of not handwriting well, of not liking writing, of being blocked. We still start with jotting down their ideas. We do it for them because before they can take the risk again of using the pen on the page, Mm. they need to value their own thoughts, but they won't value them until you do. Mm. Because right now, when they go to the page, they're thinking, what won't get me in trouble? (laughs) 
How can I get out of this quickly? Okay. What can I put down that will let me pass and get away from excruciating pain? Mm. And what you want to do instead is catch them in the act of self-expression. Yeah. So let's say you have this, you know, 16 year old, you're making dinner and they come in and they're like, I want to play this certain video game. And it's one that you've never approved of. And they launch into their argument, their case <laughs> for whatever it is. I want you to turn off the burner, grab the nearest supermarket receipt, flip it over and start writing their exact words, Love whatever it. they are. And your teenager is going to be like, mom, what are you doing? Dad, what are you doing? And your response at that moment is, okay, listen, I want to take this seriously and I'm not going to remember everything you're saying. So I'm going to write it down mm -hmm. and you just start jotting it down. And then that night at dinner, I want you to pull that back out and say, you know, uh, Ludwig was telling me why he thinks he should be on these games. And I was afraid I'd forget his argument. So I want to read it and I want us to discuss it. Mm. And you start valuing those words and you can take that and type it up in a word doc. And then at the top, just put, you know, a plus sophomore writing and your kid's going to be like, wait, what? I didn't write that. Yeah, you did. These are all your thoughts. This mm -hmm. is the case you made. This is the mm -hmm. vocabulary you used. I found it impressive. Mm. Start there. That's validating. Yeah. yeah. How empowering. Yeah. And, and kids struggling in school, the parents are pulling them out too. I love that you're willing to pull them back and give them that safe place to start to want to risk trying to express themselves in writing again. So important. So important. And you can value things like their online gaming chat. You can value if they have Facebook and are creating status updates. One of the things that I share regularly is our best students in Brave Writer are very, very active online. Mm. You know, there's a, a reluctance to let teens be on the computer too much. Mm -hmm. But if you want them to grow as writers, there is a ready-made global audience waiting to read their words. And the kids who get comfortable figuring out how to get a rise out of their audience are far better writers. <laughs> yeah. 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 And that's where you're going to be coming into the second book, right? And talking us through tech and kids. And that's exactly we right. Got it. We got to get that book in the spring. Okay, good. That's so right. if I'm going back to the brave learner for a minute, you talk about, because the subtitle is really captivating. You talk about mm -hmm. um, uh, surprise and mystery and adventure and learning. How do we make room for that practically? And, and why does that mean we should be brave? Um, like, how do, you, how do you encourage parents to pursue that? Yeah, so the word brave is meaningful. I originally came to the name Brave Writer while I was speaking at a conference. I had a completely different title for my company. And I was sort of in an impassioned moment. And I was like, we want free writers. We want brave writers. And the moment the word came out of my mouth, I knew that was the name of my company. Mm -hmm. So I went straight home and created a reroute and, you know, <laughs> filed the domain name server. And the reason is this, it does take courage to risk self-expression. It, it takes courage. We've watched what happens. You put yourself out there online and a million people tell you you're wrong and stupid. Mm -hmm. It takes courage to risk self-expression in your family. Your parents are constantly trying to make you be a better person than you actually are yet. So they're you know, telling you, you said it wrong or you weren't polite enough or you used the wrong intonation. So it's risky to express yourself. Mm -hmm. Also, it's risky to home educate. 
It's risky to choose to participate in your children's learning journey. It feels like you are going against all of the ways perhaps that you were raised or the model that the culture validates. The responsibility feels so huge to parents. The responsibility is huge. Mm -hmm. It is actually huge. And you find yourself doubting that you are giving your child the best all the time. I mean, if you aren't feeling that, then maybe you are not as invested, Mm -hmm. but invested parents doubt themselves. So the context for learning is risk. Mm -hmm. For, for everyone, for parent and child. So then how do we model that though, for our kids to take, what does that mean as the adult to take the learning risks? Yes. Risking by homeschooling, but personally, what does, should that look like? I think it looks like trying an idea that you aren't certain of yet. So Mm -hmm. you might say to your child, you look miserable in math. I did a little research. I found this math game. Want to try it. Mm. And you have to let go of the side of the pool, which is the math workbook, because you're convinced that that's how you learn math. Mm, You have to be courageous enough to do that research, to bring this other tool in, and then to say to your child, we're going to take a chance on this. Do you mind going on this adventure with me? Will you give me real feedback and let me know if it's working for you or not? You know, math is important. I know you're not sure why yet. I want to find out why with you. And I want us to discover together if there's a way to approach this that works better for you and accomplishes my goals for your, you know, education and well-being. And if we keep admitting that combination, I'm here to protect your well-being and education. You're there to protect your own sense of meaning and purpose. And we're going to always bring those, we're going to intersect those. We're going to bring those together and give each other honest feedback. Yeah, you seem to be really enjoying that, but I... I can't tell yet if it's accomplishing the educational goal or they say to you, yeah, mom, I can tell you think that's accomplishing your educational goal, but I hate it. (laughs) This is the conversation that happens for the entire lifespan of homeschooling. And we have to be courageous enough to care about our children's experience of learning, not just the outcomes of their education. And I think that's, you know, hearkening back to the overlap that you mentioned earlier about parenting and homeschooling. That's right. Coming so closely together in this space. And it seems obvious because the parent is the one homeschooling, but yes, our parenting strategies and principles have a huge impact on how we teach and how we learn. So for ours specifically, you and some others were influential early on for me thinking about um, how do I model for our kids what it is I want them to do. So how dare I ask them to write and read it for all their friends, if I'm not doing some variation of that. And so like newsletters or blogging or what have you to show I'm putting myself out there and it's hard or something completely non-academically related. So our county fair is running this week and every year outside of COVID, of course, um, if kids enter some sort of a craft project or whatever, they get free entry, which is great. So every year my kids enter something and I do too. And it's so Love it. humiliating, embarrassing, like as the adult to walk in with my painting or, <laughs> cause I don't have training in this. I'm just doing it in my garage for fun. But it's like, if I'm going to ask my kids to put themselves out there, I need to be willing to not get first place too, or to maybe get first place. There was one year, all of us got first place. And there was another year, none of us got first place. <laughs> Um, And it's so good for them to see me risk and fail and try again, because then when I ask them to do it, 
I think it helps them not be quite so afraid. Oh my gosh. Well, you just knocked the answer out of the park for that one. I love that. Uh, In Brave Writer, we often suggest when you do free writing that the parent writes too for that very reason. So it's a circle of writers. It's not a mother standing over the table watching her child write. Those are two very different felt experiences, right? Mm -hmm. So I love that. I love that completely. And of course, if you are learning something of your own. Like I remember teaching myself how to care for African violets. My kids got invested. They suddenly were like, mom, did you remember to water them? Oh, look, they're (laughs) blooming. Did you see? And I remember at one point we all sat down and did charcoal drawings of my African violets. Yes, That was their idea because there was a reciprocity to the learning experience. So that's very beautiful. I I like your example. Thank you. Well, and I like your violets too, because I find that our kids want to care about the things that we care about. So if they can tell we are genuinely passionate about violets or for me, wildflowers trying to, you know, find local pods and put them in whatever the kids start to get excited because they can tell it's my genuine passion. So if I am hopefully reading at sometimes, like I think one of my sad days, I'm, I was an English major. So my then 10 year old turned to me and I had four kids under the age of 10 and husbands <laughs> in startups in Silicon Valley. And like, there's not a lot of breathing room. <laughs> no. And he, go, and I was sitting down reading something. He goes, mom, you read. And I thought, Oh shoot. <laughs> How have I messed that up? Yeah. Yeah. I read, but mostly to you guys and <laughs> not for myself, but they need to see wow. read. Um, So yeah, them seeing what we care about is just as important as helping them learn how to care about something. I feel like, so I want to, I want to like detour you slightly then. And, and cause we have a lot of friends listening who are new homeschoolers and kind of throw out this big chunk of speech and then, and then have you respond to it. So I'm hosting a podcast series this summer called newbies, where we talk to folks who have just completed their first year of homeschooling and what I'm learning. And it really fascinates me. So I'd love your thoughts is that there's a significant difference between the mindset of the first generation of homeschoolers versus the parents now starting to homeschool. I'm curious, first of all, if that resonates you uh, with you, but the first generation homeschoolers were really desperate for mentorship. It was this top priority to seek out somebody who had homeschooled as long as possible and like shadow them, take notes, whatever. Um, There was this undercurrent of, I'm not sure I can do this. And while it was fed by doubt, the outcome was community building and and following along. The challenge though um, I'm observing, and this is where I'd love your thoughts, is what I'm hearing from the new generation of homeschoolers is that they don't think they need any help from mentors. Many, um, if not most, seem really satisfied just to join an Instagram community where they follow other parents who are also new and homeschooling for the first time. And the camaraderie is really valuable. But I worry that the new generation of homeschoolers maybe doesn't know what it doesn't know yet. Things like, you know, how often can you change a math curriculum with one student before you create gaps kinds of stuff. So I'm curious, what's your perspective on the new homeschool generation versus the original and any advice you would have for the new homeschool generation? Gosh, what an interesting insight. I have not thought about it as deeply as you clearly have. Okay. I think part I mean truly. And and that's partly because when you're describing my era of homeschooling, we did not have the internet and the culture did not know what homeschooling was. Right. Today, everybody knows. So when Noah was six and we visited uh, the pediatrician, he said to Noah, hey, you're lucky that you got out of kindergarten today. And Noah said, what's kindergarten? And because he, he didn't know. And then I said to the pediatrician, oh, I'm sorry, he doesn't know what kindergarten is because he's homeschooled. And the pediatrician said, 
what's homeschool. Right. So that does not happen anymore. Right. So our doubt was actually fed by the reality that homeschooling was still being discovered. It was still being built. It didn't have like universal properties. I had friends who pledged allegiance to the flag and sat in little desks and did, you know, their paces every day. Mm -hmm. And then there was me and my group, we did Konos and it was very activity based. And, you know, so there's like, there were these different experiences of it. And we were all just like needing reassurance Mm -hmm. that they could go to college. So yes, we were seeking people who had succeeded because there were so few people who even knew what it was. Today, you have lots of, you know, you go to a a college website and on the admissions page will be a tab for homeschoolers applying. So think about how different that is. So incredible. Yeah. So incredible. And the internet has provided, I think, both a wealth and a glut of information. So on the one hand, it's wonderful. You can just basically type in a word and get a lesson plan about any topic in the world, (laughs) right? But on the flip side, it's a lot to sift through in addition to homeschooling. So what I think happens is people are looking for friendship more than mentorship because they're exhausted. Yes. They're exhausted. There is so much information to wade through and they kind of like get tunnel vision. Okay, well, I found the Charlotte Mason method and I don't want to know about anything else because Mm -hmm. I'm already drowning in Charlotte Mason. There's thousands of pages just about her stuff. So perhaps, I mean, I think you and I have a similar mission. You know, we have our own Brave Learner Home community where I'm trying to bring in that mentorship. But what I've noticed is, and maybe this will be valuable to your audience. I think we started on an interesting thread when you said regrets. Mm. I think so much of homeschooling is involved in parenting and the health and wellness of the parent. Mm-hmm. And we do not attend to those two as effectively in the home education world. We keep thinking curriculum fixes yes, things. Totally. I agree. Yeah. And what we really need is mentorship in parenting. Yep. And as my good friend, Susan Weisbauer always says, do not take parenting advice from people who have not grown their children. <laughs> Correct. Right. So yeah. get some mentors, you know, it certainly doesn't need to be me, but Pick some mentors who've at least graduated a kid or two who have adult children. Uh, And then I think the self-help, you know, uh, what I call awesome adulting, self-aware piece is essential because you might have great curriculum, but it's your tone of voice that's ruining your homeschool. Mm. That's powerful. Yeah. Or we were noticing in the beginning of, you know, COVID when parents were desperate to find curriculum, that's the only question anybody wanted to talk about. It's like, yeah, right. but there are like five steps before you get to that Agreed. question. But even then there's no teacher in the box. We kept saying, you're going to open that box of curriculum and there is no teacher inside. And the most important thing you can invest in is, is you, is the teacher. A thousand percent. Professional development exists in absolutely every profession. There are literally days devoted to training teachers where students don't go to school. And yet homeschool parents not only have never many, I mean, there are some who have, but plenty who've never studied education, child development, uh, uh, neurology, all these things that literally impact how well their kids learn. Mm -hmm. And so 
well, my how, best. How can they, right? Not every homeschool parent needs to have a degree in education and teaching background. And right? that's just like, that's totally impractical. <laughs> Not necessarily. It's, it's absolutely impractical, yeah. but it's, but it's weirdly essential too. So here's what I'm saying. I'm not saying that you need to be a trained certified teacher. I have a degree in history. What I am saying is find out what you don't know. Yes. So when I was first raising my kids, Raymond and Dorothy Moore were all the rage. They Mm -hmm. had a book called Better Late Than Early. It was all about reading. That was my first brush with even thinking theoretically about what it takes to become a reader. Mm -hmm. But I had read all my La Leche League books about how to breastfeed. Yes. Why wouldn't I also care about what it means to be a reader if I want my child to read? We are very willing to do it for sort of stages of development for childhood, but we sometimes forget that there is actually some valuable theory out there. Yeah, there is. Math or about reading. And what you're saying is there are people who've invested in knowing that for you, that you could benefit from, whether it's reading their books, listening to their podcasts, or joining their communities. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to highlight early on that Brave Writer was something you developed for parents, not necessarily as a curriculum, because that is so valuable. It's reproducible, especially for families on a tight budget. It's like, hey, you train the parent versus buying five sets of lifetime curriculum. Like that's so much, that's a better cost savings. Um, And I'm not even sure. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, you're right. It is a better cost savings, but also What you will find is people who go curricula to curricula to curricula, what's really going on for them is that they're not connecting to the learner. So they think that they'll be saved in the book, but the book does not save you. So that's like the first piece of advice you have to understand with home education. It is the fundamental relationship connection between the parent and the child and the parent and learning itself that makes almost any curricula work. And then you start to discover, actually, it could use anything because I kind of know now how to activate the learner in my child. Well, and that was, I mean, back to the very beginning of our conversation today, what compelled you with this friend talking to you in the 1980s, the the philosophy of it, not so much, but when he said tailored education, you went, oh, and we can't tailor our child's education if we don't actually know how our child learns. That's right. If we're just following the curriculum tunnel and I, and I love curriculum, I buy it, I use it, but I'm not using it for the sake of using it. And and that's like the second tier of what we teach parents at homeschool expert is how to know your learner. Cause don't, please don't buy curriculum until you know your learner. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree with that. And in fact, the piece that I might say is different about today's homeschooler versus my era. So this is the only bit of analysis that I will contribute to this (laughs) is that we did not have a wealth of curricula. Mm, Yeah, we did not. So we did not rely on it as much. I used family fund magazine for 10 years. That was my favorite resource Mm -hmm. for teaching. I think there is a feeling today that the product should do the teaching. Mm. Whereas when I came into homeschooling, I thought it was me. I was excited to be the one to make the lights go on. And so when I started Brave Writer, I was like, well, these parents aren't here just to hand them a book. They actually want to be the one who turns the lights on. Mm. And so for today's homeschooler, I would invite you to connect with that feeling. What would it feel like to know that you were the one who really caused reading to occur? Mm. rather than seeking what I call the myth of independence, which is the sooner I can get them to study and use the book without me, the better homeschooler I'll be. I disagree with that 
fundamentally. I wouldn't give up our reading times together for anything. No, no of those. And I think, I think you've really encapsulated it well, that artificial sense of confidence in the curriculum. Artificial is the perfect word. Yeah. So I'm not sure if you've seen our free resources with homeschool expert or not, um, where we talk about building flexible schedules and how to learn your beautiful styles and all that stuff. But with these kinds of tools in mind, um, what advice do you have for parents who are just starting out homeschooling in terms of, you know, we've talked about this a little bit, how do they invest in themselves as teachers at home? So they have a stronger homeschool experience, um, or said differently, you know, how does homeschooling training and support play into that model that we're talking about today, learning how to take risks, like practically, what should they, is this a homeschool conference they need to attend a book they need once a year, they should try to, you know, what? So when I was a homeschooler, what I really wanted was professional development in three areas, uh, to be an effective educator, a compassionate parent, and what I like to call an awesome adult. Mm. You know, I didn't just grow up to redo childhood. I mean, I'm raising children, but I did not imagine that being an adult meant going back through 12 years of childhood. I Say those three again, Julie, those were really great. What were they again? Okay. Effective educator. Yep. Compassionate parent. Awesome adult. Yes. And so uh, the awesome adult piece is actually being the adult that I grew up to be, whether that means running marathons or getting a degree. Uh, I wanted to be able to use my adult powers for good for myself on my own behalf while I was a parent and an educator. So obviously when they're small, I'm only growing African violets. <laughs> when they're <laughs> in high school, I'm going to grad school, right? Uh-huh. So these things are scaled. But what I wanted to say is this. I wanted outside help. There was a lot on homeschooling that I could read in books, but I thought it would be really cool if I could hear from people who were social scientists or professional educators or psychologists or experts in parenting. So in Brave Rider, we formed a community we call Brave Learner Home. And each month we invite someone in to speak. We read a book or we read an article. Um, We developed what we call these one thing challenges where we'll take a topic like spiders and show you how you can teach across the curriculum to help parents break out of that need for official curriculum all the time. There's a discussion board where we talk about what it means to have self-care, to encourage your own awesome adulting journey as it works with kids. And then there's training for using Brave Rider products. So that's my answer to that question in the Brave Rider space. But I also know that you have your own homeschool expert space and your own fans. And I have no doubt that what you offer is rich and really helpful. So my thought is this, and I think you and I are very much in agreement, triangle in other voices. Do not rely only on your peers. Do not rely only on yourself. Bring in people who've devoted themselves to the thing you wish you knew better and benefit from their understanding, their knowledge, their wisdom. Well, and your brave uh, learner world that you've created on your website is so clear, right? It really removes a lot of the noise that I think we were talking about earlier when, when you're saying a thousand pages just on Charlotte Mason online, you've really streamlined and funneled it in a way that parents can come in and, you know, get some solid practical wisdom, nuggets, advice, stuff they can use. And yes, it doesn't mean they can't also use Charlotte Mason or visit homeschool wherever else, but 
you've, you've done that hard work of streamlining it rather than just going on random blogs and trying to right. put something together. And then, and then anytime we're, we're building something from scratch, that means we're going to fail because we're experimenting and trying something new. <sighs> and so I feel like parents spend the first five years historically, right? Original homeschoolers. It took us like five years to get our feet on the ground underneath us in a way that we feel like, okay, I think I can, I think I've got a handle on this. Yes. But that's five whole years of your kid's education that you don't have to suffer through, right? Well, that's such a, a I mean, that's such a valid point. Um, and the thing is too, you can become overwhelmed because obviously there are homeschool philosophies out there that are in conflict with one another. So what we really want to do is build our own confidence in our sense of adventure and risk-taking and trust in that inner voice that guides us in our own families. And right. that does right. take time. Um, we try to keep all of our, you know, what we offer is on the monthly, you know, we try not to do too much of a glut and give people room to think and breathe and taking some reflection time. But, you know, Today's homeschooler really does have a lot available. And for that, I'm grateful. I always say that homeschoolers were the first ones to barge through the door of the internet because the second the doors were open, we were in there, man. We I, I spent hours reading email lists and typing on discussion boards. It was so life-giving. So, you know, definitely take advantage of that. Some of my best friends today came through discussion boards in the 90s, amazingly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there's a value. Um, yeah. So we're not saying eliminate the internet. Right. At all. <laughs> no, no, no. Use it wisely. Like choose your, your teams. And honestly, as we were saying earlier, as we know our kids and as we know our parenting principles that helps streamline and eliminate and guide us to so much of how we want to teach anyway. So if, if I right. know that I maybe have this type of parenting model and I look at this kind of curriculum and the rigidity of it doesn't match how right. we function at home, or we have some special needs learners. It's like, yeah, that's definitely not going to work for us as a, exactly. as a model. I don't even have to think about it. I don't have to worry about how awesome is it because it doesn't fit us and it fits somebody else. And that's terrific. Like there's some co-ops that I won't name that are wonderful. And, you know, I have a lot of friends that love them and benefit from them. I tried it for one year. I'm like, this is not <laughs> our speed. <laughs> I am so not interested in singing these songs over and over again. I'm going to go, Daddy, uh, right? But it Hilarious. really hits home for a lot of people. And so, yeah, like you're saying, comparison, what works for somebody else is kid. Yes. It's not necessarily going to work for your kid. And that's and, right. I loved you highlighting, by the way, the college tab. Um, I don't know if I told you this or not earlier, um, but we published a whole chapter in a book. We being uh, Dean Sue of Duke University and I did some research this last year. And we interviewed deans of admissions from all over the U.S. Oh, nice. What do universities think of homeschool students as candidates? And it has shifted so much from this Frankenstein <laughs> perspective <laughs> yeah. to actually becoming desirable. And so we fleshed that out and um, nice. made all that a chapter of the book. But all that to say to parents listening who are saying, oh, yeah, the college tab, you know, what was that? Is there a problem there? It's like, no, no, it's actually great. Please dig into that. But um, it's it's really a valuable genuine way to educate now. So I know I want to honor your time, Julie, and let you go. So what final thoughts do you have for our friend listening today who might be new to this idea of homeschooling and considering it? Well, I don't regret it. I have many regrets in my life. That is not one. Uh, I found homeschooling to be so life-giving and life-forming. Not only was it good in a sense for my kids, I mean, they all look back on it with good feeling now, uh, but I myself as a human grew 
immeasurably by being a home educator. So I found it to be a very fulfilling way to use my adult life. I often tell people, if it is not fulfilling for you, you are not helping your children. Mm. Don't do it as a martyr. Don't do it out of some sort of moral obligation. If you cannot find a way for homeschooling to bring you satisfaction and fulfillment as well, then work on that first because it can. It can be a rich, rich experience. Uh, And the bottom line is one thing at a time. You don't have to get all the plates spinning the first year. I talk about feathering in mm. each of the subjects over the fall. So here we are ramping up to the fall in the Northern Hemisphere. So maybe on day one, you just do your read aloud and you have a really special lunch and you blow up balloons and pop them and you do the slip and slide in the backyard. And then on day two, you read and you get out the whiteboard and you play with math but take it a little at a time. It is okay not to do seven subjects on day one. That's the beauty of homeschool. Give yourself opportunities to rotate, to feather in, to get comfortable. And if you see the attention flagging of your children, stop, (laughs) just stop. Um, Oh, I will tell you, this is a fun thing to end on. So they've done statistical research that the attention span of a child, quality attention, can be um, arrived at through this calculation, age plus one. So if you have a seven-year-old child, they can give you eight good minutes of attention. Mm -hmm. If you have a six-year-old child, they can give you seven good minutes of attention. But that also means your 15-year-old can give you 16 minutes of good attention. Mm -hmm. Once you know that, you can back off and take lots of micro breaks, yes. whether that's standing up to stretch, getting a snack, rolling their head around, changing the activity. This notion that everybody should be able to pay attention for an hour at a kitchen table no. is erroneous. So new homeschoolers, that's my <laughs> best piece of advice for you. Love it. Yeah. Chunk that chunk that stuff down. Small bits. It's a win. We do chore breaks all day long. So by the time we're done with school, the chores are done and the school's done. And it's just, yeah. Amazing. I love it. Well, Julie, thank you so much. uh, You know, I mean that genuinely for joining me on this podcast. It's been such a pleasure to have you. And I know hearing a bit more of who you are is going to be meaningful for listeners as they check out more of what you offer through Brave Writer. And then as a reminder to listeners, you can pre-order this new book, Raising Critical Thinkers, starting this August. So please check that out. But Julie, thank you so much for your advice and encouragement for being here today. Thanks for having me. You're a wonderful interviewer. That was fun. (laughs) Thank you. And thank you, friend, for joining us today. I hope you're walking away from this conversation feeling more equipped to teach the ones you love. See you next time. Thanks for joining Ann Crossman on our podcast, helping you homeschool confidently with help from the experts. You can do this, and we are here to help. We invite you to follow us on social media and subscribe to our podcast so you stay up to date on the latest resources. See you next time.